building coalitions, sustaining the energy required for change, um, creating community across difference. You know, these are very challenging issues and they are not well paid and are not well compensated. And people give their, you know, blood, sweat and tears to them. And I loved it, but I think I was too easily frustrated. Maybe I'm just impatient. Comfortable in college, having uncomfortable conversations about inequality and gender, Shiley Warren wanted to emulate the activists who went out and made a difference in the world dismantling systems. Once she got out in the world, she realized how hard that was and that there might be other ways. Find out how casting a critical eye and reflecting deeply can manifest in different kinds of activism on today's Roads Taken with me, Leslie Jennings Rowley. I'm here today with Shiley Warren, and we are going to talk about interesting stories and what we see around us and maybe even inside us. So thanks so much for being here, Shiley. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So I start these interviews the same way with two questions, and they are these. When we were in college, who were you? And when we were getting ready to leave, who did you think you would become? Um, I knew you were going to ask those questions, so I have been trying to think about it. And it is hard. It is hard to to really kind of tap into who I was as an undergraduate. I think I was very much in formation as a person. And so I was probably a lot of different people, you know, in those four years and that, that period. But I know I came in pretty... Uh, naive and unaware of what awaited me. So I came from a public high school in Florida. I was not tapped into kind of elite networks of boarding schools or the Northeast or anything, but I was immediately uh, so jazzed about the kinds of people I was meeting. Um, So I think I was someone who was very curious, very excited, very much trying to find my place in somewhere where I felt like a lot of people knew how to belong and I wasn't quite sure how Mm -hmm. to belong. And I think like you know, one does, you know, finding one's people through through those years. I ended up being someone who kind of worked, I think, on the margins a little bit. And was very interested in um, creating kind of inclusive spaces. But also, you know, I, I saw myself as a little bit of a rabble rouser, I think, more than I feel like I am today. Um, <laughs> um, but I saw myself as a little bit of somebody who was interested in shaking things up and getting people to have hard conversations and in a little bit defying the status quo. But in retrospect, I think that had a lot to do with, you know, with, with actually trying to belong, right? Ironically. Right. I was a women's studies major and I was very much interested in feminist issues. And I tried to align with people who were also interested in those kinds of hard conversations around gender and campus, as you know, you know, ongoing conversations in our world, but certainly also at that time. So I think, yeah, I mean, I think I was, I was, I was a lot of things. I was a lot of things, but I was more than anything, I think a really committed feminist. And I became someone who was very kind of, interested in pursuing academia and was really intellectually like so was so curious and so excited about what I was doing in the classroom actually and with my with the faculty that I met. So really it was the life of the mind, the ideas, the grappling with society and changes and wanting to incite change or just watch change either way. Did that mean you were going straight into graduate school right after college and you knew that I don't think I knew that at that time. I do think there were a couple of classes and a couple of faculty members who said to me, you know, you 
uh, you know, have the potential to do this? Have you thought about this? Like, have you thought about going to graduate school? And I think I was like, I think that's enough school for now. You know, at the time, I wasn't, I wasn't in a hurry to do it. No. So I wasn't sure. I think, I don't know if I knew what I wanted to do when I left. Honestly, I think I was a little bit lost. I sort you know, again, I was like, maybe I'll go. I, you know, one day somebody said like, I think I'm going to law school. And I was like, oh, that sounds like a pretty good path. You know, that seems worthwhile. Maybe I'll try that. I did not even get anywhere near that. But I ended up right after graduation, I did end up doing more political work. So I thought I was going to do more activist work probably is what I would say. Uh, I thought mm -hmm. probably I was looking for a path in activism or policy or politics, I think. Um, yeah. But I didn't go in that direction. Yeah. So were those first issues, like, were you drawn to the political through the idea of being political and being that rabble rouser? Or was it issue based, like, I'm going to do some gender work? Or how did that path, like, spark for you? Yeah, it was definitely issue based. I definitely wanted to do feminist work. And I wanted, um, I think I just had a lot of feminist heroes. I really, you know, women who had changed the world and had, you know, and I studied the women's liberation movement in the 70s and, and the women of color activism, the post-colonial feminists that came after. And I just thought I would, that was the, you know, the kinds of people I wanted to grow up to be actually um, were, you know, people who, who really did change lives and policies for the better. But in the end, yeah, but in the end, I think I became a person who studies those things more than actually enacts them or incites them, so to speak. Right. Yeah. And but things were inciting and exciting um, in your life in those early years um, that put you on a different kind of path or trajectory. Tell us about those. So right when I graduated, I went out to California to work um, on a political campaign. And I think maybe that was it because I found that on the ground activism is really hard. Building coalitions, sustaining the energy required for change, um, creating community across difference. You know, these are very challenging issues and they are not well paid and they're not well compensated and people give their, you know, blood, sweat and tears to them. And I loved it, but I think I was too easily frustrated. Maybe I didn't quite have the constitution to like patiently work through problems. I'm very, I'm very kind of task oriented and I want things to happen quickly. Maybe I'm just impatient. I want things mm -hmm. to happen very quickly. And when you're doing that kind of political work, I mean, you're knocking on doors, you're trying to call up, you know, staff in, in legislative offices, you know, that kind of work is, and working with people who are generally disagree with you. And right. I think that was maybe, um, I have so much respect, you know, for people who are on the ground doing that kind of work every day and getting people on board with hard ideas. But I think for me, it was too slow in some way. I mean, it's going to sound weird, you know, that I moved then to academia, which in which is like a snail's pace and nothing changes. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, at that time, I think I was I, I was kind of impatient for change that I felt like was there were too many obstacles. Right. Well, because you couldn't see how that thing that you were doing was leading to the the bigger picture. Yeah. yeah. Right. I yeah. think I think maybe yeah maybe I, I didn't stick with it long enough maybe to see how those incremental changes built over time you know that's right that's right but other changes were happening for you yes. you met people that changed where you were were even going right true yes so um, I spent some time out west in San Francisco for a while and then I decided um, most of my friends from Dartmouth were moving to New York City and I I guess I missed them and I felt like that was a good place to try to build a life and so within the first year or so after graduation I moved to New York and I ended up meeting uh, someone we didn't go to college with I met um, my boyfriend at the time and that is really where my path took a very unexpected di direction. 
I was working on Madison Avenue, an advertising agency, hating my life and everything that I was working on. Um, I was, you know, trying to help people work on ad campaigns for airline seats. And I just thought every day I was like, what am I doing here? Except being able to live in New York and hang out with friends. But I met somebody and his big dream was to travel South America. And I'm a Spanish speaker. My mother's Colombian. Oh. I've spent time in South America and hadn't really tapped into it for a long time. And I thought, well, I speak Spanish. Like, I could do that. Maybe I'll try that. Which you did. Which I did. And so right away ended up in Argentina. And I lived in Buenos Aires. We did together. Um, I lived in Buenos Aires for a year. And because of Dartmouth, I ended up getting a grant to do an internship with the Women's Political Organization. And I did that as well. So I did an internship and I taught English. And the internship was with activists. It was women who had started their work during the, you know, the dirty wars in Argentina, during the dictatorship. And they were a group of, you know, somewhat older women, you know, to me at the time, they were, you know, in their 50s and 60s, they had raised children throughout the dictatorship. And their goal was to get more women into political office. And so I interned with that group of women in that organization and had a really incredible experience learning from, you know, a different generation of activists in a different political situation, different political climate than the one, you know, that I had been tapped into here in the U.S. Yeah. And I can imagine regardless of whether you tapped into them, you would have had an amazing experience there. But do you think the draw for you to look for that opportunity came as a bit of a reaction to, hmm, here I am, like this very strong feminist, and I'm following some man's dream to this out? Okay, well, there's a twist to the story. That okay, I didn't say. <laughs> but since you asked, um, actually, it was his dream, and he sort of planted it. And I was like, that's great. I mean, why don't I have that dream? That sounds like a great dream. Maybe I should try that. I got myself an internship. I got myself a grant. I got it all set up. And then a few months before we were supposed to leave, he broke up with me. And I had, at that point, the question for myself, which was, am I going to do this? still or not. And I did. And I got on a plane and I left and I moved to Argentina actually on my own. Ah! And, yeah. And I got it all set up. I was having an amazing time. And it was only at that point that a few months later he came down and joined me. But oh, see, there he had to follow. I love it. So it there is a story. good twist. Yeah. There, there's a good twist. Yeah. And we've been together ever since. So he's my husband now. He's a great person. He's been supportive of my career throughout all our years together. So you've stayed there roughly five years? Well, I stayed down there. I stayed, we stayed in Argentina one year and then we traveled. Um, so we saved up a bunch of money and then we traveled overland from Buenos Aires all the way up to Bogota, Colombia, where I have family. <sighs> so we spent six months on the road, really just kind of what are we doing today? Where are we going? Where are we camping? What are we eating? Who are we going to meet? It was an incredible time. And all along the way, people kept saying, it's so good you're doing this now. You know, someday you'll have kids and you'll have a job and you won't be able to travel like this. And I remember thinking at the time, like, um, what? You know, I could live like this forever. I don't right. know. But I don't know about your life, but my life is never going to be, you know, that compromise that I can't just get on a bus. And OK, obviously that, you know, they were right. <laughs> <laughs> they were right. I was wrong. It's wonderful that we did it when we did it. And I'm so glad we did. So we traveled all through South America and then we regrouped. We went back to... New York, made some more money, and then traveled again. We moved to Madrid in Spain, lived in Spain for a year, kind of replicated some of those. Um, without with that, Then I lost track of the internships and a little bit just did the traveling and teaching English. 
then moved to Morocco and did it again for another year. And at that point, it was traveling sort of in that part of the world where I reconnected with the Dartmouth professor, Marion Hirsch, who said, we've got this great master's program. Are you sure you don't want to come back? You would be such a good fit for it. And I was actually really at that point desperate to come back to a more thriving intellectual environment. I was a little bit tired of teaching verbs and nouns, even though the cultural thing was amazing. Living in Morocco was incredible. I'm so grateful that I had that time before 9-11 actually to live in a Muslim country in North Africa and um, have my own experience of what it's like to live among people who are so different and have different, you know, cultural, uh, political and religious beliefs. But I really did want to, I was, I was so I don't know, hungry for something else that I took her up on the offer really quickly and applied and then actually ended up back at Dartmouth for a master's degree. That's great, Mm -hmm. which kind of tapped in again to the life of the mind. And but on top of all these other experiences and cultures and difference and all of that. So did that inform what you were studying both in the master's and then when you ultimately moved on to the Ph.D.? It really did because I had, so I'd lived on either side of this massive immigration problem in Europe, which is both in Spain and in Morocco. So I met people traveling, you know, both ways. So on on the one hand, kind of the legacies of colonialism, on the other hand, the desperate kind of desire to migrate north from North Africa into Europe. And so, so that issue, right, and the way that it was being handled at the time really informed what I wanted to work on in my master's program. I was really a literary scholar as an undergraduate. I was a feminist scholar, but mostly of literature. And when I went back to graduate school, then I I didn't see that reflected in the literature yet. It was sort of too new a problem. Mm. And um, I saw it more in films. And so then I kind of migrated over to cinema as an area of research. And that really set my path today, I am a professor of film studies, and most of my research is on the history of women and documentary. Just a side note, mm-hmm. do you have any archival documentary footage of those years on the road? This was pre-iPhone, pre yeah, that, right? it's so different. Yeah, I have a lot of photographs, and actually we kept a journal so we have a journal that we kept each night. We would trade off who wrote in the journal to document our journey. Oh. And so so we have we have those things hidden away somewhere. I haven't gotten them out in a while. but That's a pretty special thing. Yeah. No, no, no moving images because we didn't, I don't think we even had a digital camera at the time, to be honest. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so then actually that leads into our, the documentary, you said that you couldn't find these stories at mm-hmm. the time in the literature. Mm-hmm. This this is rather new. I mean, we're, there may be documentary footage from years and years and years ago, but probably not a lot of women mm-hmm. in them. Um, mm-hmm. So you're looking at of the now culture as it's almost as it's unfolding, right? With the well, at the time, so I wasn't doing documentary in my master's program. I was doing fictional films, um, of which mm-hmm. there were a couple on this issue. So film set in Spain, film set in either North or even Sub-Saharan Africa about people migrating North and the reasons they do and the lives they encounter when they arrive. So I started there, but I guess eventually when I 
you know, so that was my master's program here at Dartmouth. And I got, I had a great experience. I'm so grateful for the comparative literature master's program that I did. And then I went on to do my PhD. And in my PhD program, I, I guess I reconnected then with my feminist studies work and that that intersected with the film work. And I ended up kind of squarely in the history of feminism as it relates to cinema and as it relates in particular to documentary. So the question I was really interested in my doctoral work was how was cinema crucial to the feminist activism of the 1970s and what kinds of documentaries emerged? And in particular, like what kinds of stories can we now detect in the documentaries that tell us a kind of a deeper, richer, alternative vision of the 70s feminist movement, then we get in, I think, contemporary explanations of what that movement was and what its politics were. So I'm, I was just curious, kind of what story does the, what stories do the films tell and how does that compare with the more dominant ver- versions of the 70s that we get in contemporary feminism? Does that make sense? That's a complicated Definitely. explanation. No, <laughs> okay. it does. It does. And I think that I mean, it's it's both the historical lens into the way we look at an older time period is one thing, but then you also probably have lots of tools at your disposal in your teaching, your writing, um, the things you're thinking about to look at how that kind of storytelling is playing out now in activist cinema or you know, media on TikTok, even whatever it is, how much of the newer media is informing the things that you think about now? I think that's a great question. And I am probably not as, you know, because I think my interest is in the 1970s and in documentary, those are the trends I tend to still follow. But I suppose I could say this, in the 70s, when women were trying to change the world, right, for the betterment, I think, of all, not just women, but especially poor women, marginalized women, the issues were you know, reproductive justice, the issues were equal pay. I mean, yes, exactly. Oh. To see your face. Yeah, yeah <laughs> precisely. Issues that are very much at the center of our concerns today. What's interesting is that the key in documentary has always been to talk to ordinary women to hear their experiences and to realize that we, many of us, share an experience of the world because we are women. Now, it's also true that there are extreme differences in our experiences depending on our access to wealth and employment and the protection of our rights, et cetera. Um, But all of those issues were being worked out in the 1970s. They they continue to be worked out and in similar ways today. So if you look at women's activism online, I think in a lot of different forms of media, reproductive rights is a great example right now. What do we hear? We hear stories about women, right? And, and, And either their lack of access to reproductive care or how it saved their lives. And those one-on-one stories kind of accumulate, accumulate, accumulate. And that is how we, I think, get people to see, you know, the impact that politics has on our individual lives and then also understand how we might change it, right, collectively, together, how we could work together to, you know, create the change we want to see. Right. Well, I have to reflect that 
this project of Roads Taken has really been that story too, not specifically to women, but kind of shining the light on ordinary, extraordinary people and showing our shared experience. So it is a quite effective tool. I, I know you know. Um, I totally agree. Yeah. So Shiley, when you think back to that woman who thought of herself as a rabble rouser and was trying to belong and ironically was looking in in spaces of not belonging and you told her laid it out this is where I've been this is where what I'm doing this what I'm thinking I would imagine she sees continuity there what would her reactions be to that my younger self yeah to my to to where you are now that is a good question I think I was a little bit hard at the time and judgmental I think I would have said hmm not radical enough. You know, I think I I actually do. I mean, I'm happy with where I ended up. But I do, you know, have a husband and two kids and a station wagon and a stable (laughs) (laughs) job. A stable job. And, you know, I tend to vote, you know, a blue ticket all the way down the line. I think I'm, I'm probably not as radical as I maybe hoped I would become. Right. Right. Well, (laughs) I also think she might have um, missed some of the nuance in settling in (laughs) and being really thoughtful and um, all the things that it seems as though you've been able to do both personally and professionally. So thank you. you I would have been hard on myself, I think. (laughs) But it's true. You know, I think at the time I wasn't I don't think at the time I believed that you could do good work from the inside. You know, this kind of issue with political change is that. I think as a young person, I thought if you want to, you have to just destroy things to change them, right? You have to dismantle them and start over. And th- now I learned that actually we need a lot of really good, committed, thoughtful people on the inside um, because institutions and organizations are very resistant to change that comes from the outside. But from the inside, you can, you can I've learned that it can be done. Well, that is very insightful, and um, she probably knew it all along, too. She was looking to be to belong and, and all of those things. So, Shiley, thank you so much for sharing this with yeah. us and taking us down this path. And wish you well wherever the next one takes you. So nice of you. Thank you so much for listening to my story and asking such great questions. That was Shiley Warren, who's currently at the University of Texas, Dallas, where she is Associate Professor of Visual and Performing Arts and Film Studies, as well as Associate Dean of Graduate Studies in the School of Arts, Humanities, and Technology. Her research takes up debates in film history, feminist theory, documentary studies, and film theory. She and her writing, including her award-winning piece, Revolution is Another Climax, can be found on Twitter, if that's still a thing, at SheLikesWhat. We know what we like, and that's bringing great stories to you from our fabulous guests. Don't forget to follow or subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, and check out all the show notes and then and now photos and transcripts at roadstakenshow.com to keep you full of great content until the next episode with me, Leslie Jennings Rowley of Roads Taken.